Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. We're thrilled to welcome Samir Michigotri professor of bioengineering at Harvard, drug delivery pioneer, and serial biotech entrepreneur to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Michael Bell, and special guest host, Michael Deem, former chair of the bioengineering department at Rice University, and now with Coach Closal Ventures. Michael, can you give us a bit of background on yourself for our audience? Jazz, delighted to be on the podcast today. I received my BS in chemical engineering in 1991 and my PhD also in chemical engineering in 1994 from UC Berkeley. Did a postdoc in physics at Harvard. I was a professor at UCLA for a while and Rice University recruited me to build their biological efforts. I started the first PhD program in the US with synthetic biology in the title about 10 years ago. I was chair of the bioengineering department. I worked with a number of small companies through the years. Probably the one with the best exit was Ion Torrent Systems, which eventually was sold to Thermo Fisher for about $2 billion. About a year ago, I joined Coastal Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence, really enjoying working with small companies to invent the future and change the world at Coastal Ventures. Really pleased to welcome Samir to the podcast today. Fantastic. Thanks again for joining us, Michael. Uh, and Samir, our guest of honor here, can you kick things off for us and share a brief intro with us as well? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Chas, for this uh, conversation. And Michael and Michael, pleasure to have you in this conversation. So a bit about myself. I grew up in a small town in India, a small by Indian standards, still about a million people. And I went to a school called Institute of Chemical Technology to get my degree in chemical engineering. It's a very unique school, which is really focused on chemical engineering. That's pretty much the primary science engineering degree that they offered. And I went there without really knowing much uh, at uh, what uh, chemical engineering is about and got to get the education, chemical engineering, very focused education. I thought I was going to work in a petrochemical industry after when I graduated, I wanted to pursue my PhD, so came to MIT. That's where I got introduced to Bob Langer. That was also my first introduction to real biology. Until then, I had not really formally studied biology. Got very excited about research at the interface of engineering and medicine and started working in that area. That was also my introduction to drug delivery. Worked on a transdermal delivery project. When I finished my PhD, I was really fascinated to clinically translate the research that I had done as a part of my PhD 
So state involves lab as a postdoc to the delivery technology to a clinical validation study. And when that happened, I also got excited about commercial translation. So we spun off a company based on that research. I worked at that company. I was the first employee. I worked there for a couple of years and was really fascinated by this chain of events from discovery all the way to translation and wanted to do that many times over. So started as a faculty at UC Santa Barbara in the Department of Chemical Engineering. I also started a center for bioengineering at UCSB. I was the director at the center. And about five years ago, I moved to Harvard. So currently I'm in the School of Engineering at Harvard in CIS, working on different types of drug delivery problems. And I also have an appointment at the WIS Institute, which is focused on translation of research into useful products. Thanks, Sumir, for that great background. And maybe if you can help our listeners tie those threads together, what's been the North Star for you in your career? You know, if I had to really think about it, I would say it's really the desire to break the silos, whether they be engineering versus medicine, experimental research versus theoretical research, basic versus translational research, academia versus industry. You know, I always felt that these boundaries are somewhat artificial. They are designed for convenience, but they come in the way of innovation. So I have taken particular joy in breaking those silos and uh, I have benefited in the process. And I think that has significantly changed the way we think about problems. And I think, you know, that's really the key common thread among a number of things that we have done over the last uh, many years. That's fantastic. Thanks, Samir. And one question to hopefully set some context for today's episode that we love to ask our guests comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Could you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? That's a very inspiring quote. You know, it really, to me, it says that, you know, you are not here on a predictable journey that you are a passenger of, but you can play an active role in defining where it goes. And that's a very empowering thought. And, you know, I mean, when you look around, uh, you know, there are many things that bother us. And, you know, when they do, we owe it to ourselves to play a role in changing them. And when uh, the same thing bothers sufficient number of people, that triggers the change and that changes the future. So I think that that's really a very empowering and inspiring thought. And in my own field, when I look around, I see many things that bother me. You know, I don't like that we inject drugs into the body with needles. I think that's a very barbaric method, brute force method. We do it out of convenience because there is no other way of doing it. But still, you know, it's not the most elegant way of delivering uh, drugs. I don't like the way how we take the blood out using the decades-old phlebotomy method for diagnostics. I don't like how it takes such a long time to develop new drugs. I would like to see all these things change, and uh, I want to play a role in that. So I think there are many individuals who probably share similar vision or similar ideas. It's great to be able to work with them to move things forward, and hopefully it will change the way we do these things in future. Samir, for decades, 
you had taken the knowledge and insight gained from your research to pioneer new methods of transdermal, oral, and targeted drug delivery systems. For those unfamiliar with the space, can you share with us a brief history of drug delivery and how you've seen the field evolve? What have been the main inflection points these past decades? The drug delivery is a very diverse field and it's really a melting pot of a number of researchers and technologies. Historically, if you look at the field, it existed many years ago, primarily in pharmaceutical sciences, mainly in the form of formulation design. And you know, around 70s, engineers started coming into the field primarily through development of new technologies and materials, which can change how the drugs are delivered. And also in part uh, by developing mathematical models, which can describe the transport processes in, in the field of drug delivery. And that brought in a lot of interesting technologies. Polymers is a prominent example. In the 70s, the introduction of polymers brought in drug delivery technologies like sustained release, for proteins, transdermal patches came out of that area of research. Pegylated proteins made a transformative impact on the field. And that evolution continued. Fast forward a couple of decades, then chemistry started making a significant impact on drug delivery, especially in the early 2000s when nanomedicine really became a key player in drug delivery. Lots of new nanomaterials were synthesized. Many of them came from chemists, and that have had a transformative impact on drug delivery. In the last several years, I would say biology has made a transformative impact because many of the drug delivery solutions and technologies have uh, strong roots in biology. So now, you know, when you look at the field, it's really a melting pot of pharmaceutical scientists, engineers, chemists, biologists, and many others. And that has really brought a sort of tremendous strength, I think, to the field of drug delivery in terms of taking on these complex problems of delivering therapeutics. The main inflection points, uh, I would say, are really introduction of materials, which really started a more technology impact of drug on the field of drug delivery in the form of polymers and later lipids, which have certainly played a huge role uh, in where drug delivery is today. Introduction of uh, devices in the form of energy sources like ultrasound, electricity, magnetic fields, they have had a transformative impact on what can be delivered. That largely happened in the late 90s and it, it continues to date. And, you know, one of the main challenges of drug delivery, I think, and that's something, you know, we continuously had to address is that the drugs themselves have changed over the years. Drugs were mainly small molecules many decades ago, then came peptides and proteins, then came nucleic acids. And now we are dealing with cells as drugs. And as the drugs themselves change, the technologies that are needed to deliver them effectively continue to change. And that sort of hand-in-hand uh, -hand journey of evolution of drugs and simultaneous evolution of delivery technologies, I think has been quite spectacular over the last few decades. Thank you, that was a great overview and it is certainly an exciting time to be a part of drug delivery. So what sparked your interest uh, in drug delivery and uh, in particular with biological barriers and delivering medicines to and through them? When I started working in drug delivery, 
it really connected with the chemical engineer in me. So I, I recall that when I was an undergraduate student, I was learning fluid dynamics. One thing that we learned is how difficult it is to predict how specific molecules move in a complex system, especially when flows are turbulent and the geometry is complex. It's extremely difficult to predict at a fundamental level how things move. And then I went to do an internship in a chemical company, and I saw these huge plants, chemical plant that span like square mile of area, and lots of things are in motion. There are pumps, there are reactors, and that contrast is quite significant, right? On one hand, you cannot predict at a fundamental level how things move, and at the same time, you're moving millions of tons of material and making useful things on them. And that really, I think, is chemical engineering. Predict what you can, approximate what you cannot predict, and connect the dots of different systems to understand how things work together. And when I came to do my PhD work, I saw drug delivery in the same light. We don't know how things move inside the body. The body is so complex, we don't understand the transport processes. Yet, we are delivering drugs. We have to figure out how to deliver them. And that overall principle of trying to understand things, how things work in the body, and simultaneously using that knowledge and simultaneously approximating what we don't know and figuring out how a complete solution works, that really appealed to me uh, as an engineer. And that's where really the interest in biological barriers also started because what's really stopping us from delivering the drugs the, the, the way we want are biological barriers. If drugs reached where we want them to reach without a problem, then everything will be easy. But most of the time we are fighting against them. We figured that if we invest in understanding the biological barriers, if we invest in strategies to overcome them, they will lead us to new delivery technologies. And that started the journey. And to date, that's been the working principle of our lab. Let's dive a little bit deeper on that topic and, and chat a bit more about biomaterials. How do biomaterials come into this picture? Biomaterials are always a big part of drug delivery. They have been, they are, and they will continue to be. Because when you want to control the microenvironment around the drug, when you want to protect the drug, when you want to take it to a certain destination within the body, materials are really going to be a key tool. So when the field started, polymers played that huge role. How do you encapsulate a protein within a polymeric depot so that you get sustained release of the drug so that you don't have to inject multiple times? That's how the field started. How do you use polymers like PEG to conjugate to protein so that you can improve the half-life? That played a huge role. Lipids in multiple forms have played a huge role. Uh, liposomes were the first ones to really make their impact by encapsulating small molecules like doxorubicin to get a better therapeutic activity from the small chemo drugs. And more recently, lipid nanoparticles have transformed how vaccinations are done. So I think materials have always been that tool which gives us an opportunity to take the therapeutic to the next level. And I think the future also will bring new materials to the play and they will continue to have a similar impact.
Your research has provided novel insights into biological barriers of the skin, the blood-brain barrier, and the gastrointestinal tract, among others. How is the Mitra Gotri lab tackling these challenges? And what are, in your opinion, the central tenets of drug delivery? So these barriers, the one that you mentioned, they are really the gatekeepers of the drug. Wouldn't it be nice if we can deliver the drug transdermally by putting a patch, but the skin wouldn't let us do that? Wouldn't it be nice if we can take proteins orally, but the gastrointestinal tract wouldn't let us do that? Delivering drugs into the brain is a huge challenge in the field of therapeutics. So part of the challenge here is in understanding how do these barriers work? So developing physical models of these barriers so that we can study them, developing mathematical models so that we can take our experimental understanding and put that into some sort of predictive model. That has been very helpful. And we have always spent uh, significant attention to that. So my lab over the years has developed several models of transport across the skin. Same thing with the blood-brain barrier and will continue to do so. And, you know, one of the ways you can learn about the barriers is by perturbing them. When the barrier is intact and its natural state, you always wonder what is it that makes it work the way it does. And the best way to learn is to perturb it from that equilibrium and see how it restores itself, see how it allows the transport of molecules then. And that's how really a lot of our uh, drug delivery technology started. Initially, we use ultrasound to perturb the barriers, both the skin and the blood-brain barrier. Then we use small chemicals to perturb that. We identified peptides which can perturb that. More recently, we have been using ionic liquids uh, to perturb that and using body's own cells to perturb that. And every time we perturb the barrier using physical methods, chemical methods, biological methods, we have always learned something new about the barrier and out of that have come technologies which can deliver drugs in more effective ways. So that I think combination of understanding and simultaneously developing new technologies based on that understanding has been very exciting for us. Thank you for sharing. And you had mentioned a lot of fundamental challenges and advancements recently in, in drug delivery. So coming to today, in your opinion, what are some of the most pressing challenges in drug delivery? You know, there are many. There are a couple that I can think of, certainly from my perspective, these are really pressing challenges. One is simple ways to deliver biologics. If we go back in history, drugs were largely small molecules and we would take them by pills. Pills are easy to take. We are all used to taking them. But the therapeutic landscape changed. Now biologics are the prominent therapeutic modality and they are delivered by injections. Now, every year, about 16 billion needle injections are done. That's a lot of needles and syringes. And as biologics continue to become even more prominent, I think there has to be a simple way, like an oral pill, to deliver them. I think that's a very important challenge and the one that we are very excited about taking on. And the second challenge is targeting. A lot of therapeutic modalities are delivered systemically and they go everywhere. And their true potential 
is actually limited by their off-target effects. I mean, we all know that safety is the highest priority in terms of drug development. And by not being able to control where the drug goes, safety limitations really become a challenge in terms of getting the best out of therapeutic modality. So you take any favorite modality, you know, whether it's a viral vector or an LNP, a lipid nanoparticle or any other bio, any biologic, the inability to control the targeting or inability to target it to specific tissues is a huge challenge. And by targeting, I don't mean slightly better concentration at the target site versus off-target site. And I'm, I'm referring to a fundamental shift, 10 times more drug at the target site than anywhere else. That level of targeting is going to be essential to make most out of the therapeutic modalities. And that, I think, is a, a significant pressing challenge in the field. Samir, you've described your work with drug delivery and how it's designing future therapeutics. With the ongoing COVID-19 epidemic, the world has experienced the importance of drug delivery firsthand as lipid nanoparticles enabled mRNA vaccines to reach hundreds of millions and eventually billions of people. What do you think designing future therapeutics means in this broader context of application to the entire world? And that's an interesting question. I think, you know, I mean, one thing that the mRNA vaccines have done, they have brought, uh, as you said, the lipid nanoparticles at the forefront. There is recognition that lipid nanoparticles have enabled the vaccine, and without that, the potential of the vaccine would not have been realized. My thought for the future of therapeutic is that on, in a couple of different ways, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize my thoughts. One is sort of the outcome and the other is the process. In terms of the outcome, what I would like to really see is that the therapeutics become an integral part of, of our lives. Taking medicines becomes a, a simple, or the medicine become an integral part that they will be with our everyday lifestyle. And I think one example to maybe look at is how the communication or technology industry as a whole has changed from very cumbersome protocols. We are at a point where communication has become an integral part of our life. And I would like to see therapeutics become that, where taking medicines is not a chore. They integrate with our daily work style in a better way. And I think for that to happen, the process by which we integrate uh, drug delivery into drug development also has to change. You know, currently, I think drug delivery is sort of an afterthought during drug development. And what I mean by that is the therapeutic modality is kind of identified and advanced, and then drug delivery is brought into the picture. But there are many drugs which probably are out there, I, I, I suspect, that didn't make it because there wasn't a good way to deliver them in the preclinical stage. So a deeper integration of drug delivery into the drug development process, I think will make this interface smoother. It will bring out more effective therapeutics. And that I think will have a transformative impact, not only for the drug delivery field, but the kind of drugs which come out of that activity. As the world has struggled with the pandemic these past 18 months, has your vision for designing therapeutics or for drug delivery changed? 
It hasn't really changed so much. I'm hoping that now people realize the impact of lipid nanoparticles that creates an increased awareness about drug delivery, the significance of it and the impact of it. And that facilitates discovery uh, and invention of new delivery technologies and integration. One thing you could say it might have changed a bit is that the timelines of drug delivery or drug development have dramatically changed. That we all seen that within a very short period of time, new vaccines were developed and implemented. And that just kind of tells us the potential to rapidly develop therapeutics. And that challenges the dogma of the classical drug development timelines. So I'm hoping that new drugs and new drug delivery technologies can follow on the sample that COVID vaccines have brought in front of us and uh, make the process a lot more efficient. As you mentioned, with the success of the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, there's been quite a bit of investment into lipid nanoparticles. Would you like to share a bit more your thoughts on lipid nanoparticles and their potential to address some of the drug delivery challenges you brought to the fore in this podcast? Oh, they are wonderful. As I mentioned earlier, without them, without LNPs, mRNA vaccines would not have happened. So that really speaks to the importance of a good delivery technology. You know, if you look at how they are delivered for vaccines, they are injected intramuscularly and they express at the injection site. Taking a step back, you look at DLNPs for other applications where the injections would be intravenous. Then we are back to this challenge I mentioned earlier of targeting. LNPs, when you inject intravenously, they're going to go everywhere and off-target effects are going to be a uh, question and they get cleared by the liver like any other nanoparticle. So the need to target them to specific tissues and get expression in specific tissues is still a challenge that the field needs to overcome. And I hope that in coming years, new technologies can address this challenge and take the impact of LNPs to the next level. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Let's focus a little bit onto your own work, Samir, and tie it back to designing future therapeutics. Your lab has given particular focus to ionic liquid-based technologies these past few years. To start, could you briefly explain what ionic liquid technology is and how it relates to drug delivery? Uh, ionic liquids are basically liquid salts. When you think about the word salt, we always think about solids like sodium chloride, but sodium chloride is a solid because it's an inorganic salt and it forms a crystal. When you make a salt from organic molecules, they cannot coordinate as well as inorganic small ions, and that's why it's a liquid. Ionic liquids have been around in chemical industry for quite some time. They got their popularity as green solvents. They are non-volatile, so that's what made them environmentally friendly. And they have been used for a number of industrial applications, mainly as solvents. 
we saw an opportunity in ionic liquids to bring in properties which have been critically missing in the field of therapeutics. You know, as I mentioned earlier, new materials can completely transform the game in terms of therapeutics. Polymers played that role, lipids played that role, and we see a similar, maybe even a bigger opportunity for ionic liquids to play that role. So what ionic liquids can do for drug delivery, actually quite a few things. They can protect the drug and they can solubilize the drug. Actually, one of the core competencies of ionic liquids is that they can solubilize many small hydrophobic molecules for drug therapeutics. Solubility remains a big challenge, so they can help with that. They can also protect biologics, so they have the potential to address the cold chain challenge by stabilizing the biologics at room temperature. But most importantly, ionic liquids are high concentration salts. So when, when you look at a pure ionic liquid, you're looking at a four molar salt, which is 40 times higher ionic strength than the physiological ionic strength. And what that means is that you can control the local ionic composition wherever the ionic liquid goes. And pretty much all processes in the body, whether it's the enzyme activity, whether it's biological barriers, they are all controlled by local ionic composition. So by putting the ionic liquid in the body, we can control the ionic composition locally. And that really helps overcome a number of barriers in terms of delivery. So we started that exploration and we we're quite amazed by what can these ionic liquids do? So we showed that they can deliver small molecules transdermally. We showed that they can deliver proteins like insulin transdermally. We showed that they can stabilize nucleic acids, siRNA, and deliver them into the skin. Later on, we showed that ionic liquids can have very interesting properties in enhancing oral absorption of proteins. So when you think about, so if we envision ionic liquid capsule going into the uh, stomach or the intestine, when the capsule breaks open, that ionic liquid comes out and it changes the local ionic concentration. So it buffers the pH locally. So that in itself is a huge advantage for biologics delivery because it can protect uh, against low pH. It can deactivate the enzymes locally. So right there, it can reduce the enzymatic degradation of the protein. The ionic liquid, uh, the ions in the ionic liquid can interact with the mucus. The mucus really is mucins held together by ionic and hydrophobic interactions. So when the ions from the ionic liquid interact with that, the viscosity of the mucus decreases and the transport proportionately goes up. And finally, the ionic liquid can also reversibly open up tight junctions because of the local change in the ionic concentration, and that increases the transport or the permeability across the epithelium. So collectively, a single step of delivering the ionic liquid locally can increase the oral bioavailability, and that became the foundation of oral delivery of biologics with ionic liquids. And we have shown that we can use ionic liquids to deliver small proteins like insulin all the way to full-length antibodies across the gut epithelial barrier. Many other applications of ionic liquids, uh, we have shown that ionic liquids can be used to formulate vaccines and get a very interesting outcome of that vaccination process. Ionic liquids can increase transport in tumors. 
So that was a very interesting application because, you know, I mean, transport in the tumors is not as well studied. There are tremendous barriers of, for transport of molecules within the tumor. And that's in part why it's very difficult to really distribute the drug evenly throughout the tumor. So this was a collaboration project with Ramyoklu at Mayo. And the study showed that a, a intratumoral injection of ionic liquid in the tumor can really distribute the drug and keep, can keep the drug locally at the site for a long period of time. So many interesting nuances of what ionic liquids can do in the body. And each one of them kind of leads itself to uh, a new sort of opportunity to deliver drugs for different indications, all the way from dermatological applications to intratumoral applications for oncology. It's really such an exciting technology. And, you know, you shared a bit about some of the impactful ways that ionic liquids aid in the enablement of new therapeutics. And you have co-founded companies like Cage Bio and, and I2O to help bring this impact to the world. Can you share a bit more about the work from these startups? Like, what are some of the drug delivery gaps they address? So Cage Bio is a company in California, the CEO of the company, Nitin Zoshi, and the company is advancing applications of ionic liquids for transdermal and topical applications. So currently, if you look at the field of dermatology, it's largely based on small molecules. I mean, dermatological diseases collectively are a large category of medical conditions, and they're all pretty much treated largely by small molecules because it's not easy to deliver macromolecules into the skin. So compared to many other indications, I think dermatology is behind in terms of adapting to this revolution of therapeutics going to biologics. So that's the problem Cage Bio is addressing. We showed that ionic liquids can deliver biologics into the skin, and Cage Bio is building onto that to deliver all kinds of large molecules from proteins to nucleic acids into the skin. The company has advanced the technology for a number of products. One product is currently in phase two studies, and a few other clinical trials are set to start later this year. And interestingly, the company also launched a consumer product uh, couple of months ago for skincare. The goal of the product is to really improve the uh, cleanliness of the hands. That's something that really has been on everybody's mind in the last 18 months. The awareness of, of what's on your hand and what surfaces the skin comes in contact with. And, you know, we are all typically using either soap and water to clean the hands, which works if you have access to it, uh, or sanitizers. But sanitizers dry your hands and it's not easy to use them multiple number of times. So Cage Bio launched a product called IonSure, which addresses cleanliness of the hands. The uh, other company you mentioned, I2O Therapeutics, it's based in uh, Cambridge. The CEO is Ravi Srinivasan. And the company is tackling the key problem of oral delivery of biologics. As I mentioned a few times in this conversation, that biologics are a key part of the therapeutic landscape. They are injected by injections. And we would love to see a simpler, easy to use method of delivering them and oral delivery offers that potential. So ionic liquids can overcome all key hurdles for oral absorption of biologics. So I2O is building on that and uh, developing oral biologic platform. The company has made significant progress in the last couple of years since it was started and has recently announced a couple of partnerships, one with Sanofi and recently with Johnson & Johnson to advance the use of ionic liquids for oral delivery of biologics. 
Samir, in the not-so-distant past, there was a sharp divide between academia and industry. Today, you hold positions as a researcher, professor, company founder, venture partner at Catalio, and more. So it's safe to say that the once clear lines surrounding biotech's entrepreneurial ecosystem are rapidly blurring and fading. What are your thoughts on merging of the roles to span academia, industry, and financing? If, if you look at the common thread among all these roles, it's really the impact, right? So each one of these roles is about making an impact in its own way. And that's what really got me excited about playing these roles. In academia, we are thinking about discovering new things, inventing new technologies, and demonstrating the glimpse of what a future technology could be and conveying that through publications. Once that is done, and when you think about how does one translate that into a, a usable product, that's where the industry comes in. And then you're asking uh, a different question in terms of the ability of the idea to be scalable and usable and affordable. And finally, financing, if you have a platform that can solve multiple problems, which problem is really worth prioritizing? So all these are interesting nuances, I think, of uh, different aspects of technologies. And I have learned a lot by playing roles in these capacities. Each one of them is really distinct, but the interface between all these, which I think is really the bottleneck in terms of translation of ideas all the way from conception to commercialization, that interface, learning about that and how to make that interface smooth, I think is a key question that is still out there that needs some work on, I think, for all of us to think about and work towards it. You've made impressive contributions in all of these areas. Are there distinct differences demanded of you in your various different roles? Certainly. I think in the academic role, the focus is on creativity and innovation, which somewhat, I would say, disregard to the usability. Because, you know, we cannot put too many constraints on creativity in early stages. If you start thinking about the scalability and affordability on day one of the project, it's very tough to be creative. So part of the role as an academician is to really create that protective window to allow creativity to happen when the idea goes to the translational stage, the company stage, really keep creativity aside for a moment and think on practicality. So the clearly different, very significant differences between the foundation of these different areas. But you know, as I mentioned earlier, the interface between these is really the key hurdle that needs to be smoothened. How do you translate those lessons back into your lab at the Wies Institute? And how do you think about training the next generation of drug delivery entrepreneurs? The most common way I would say I do that is just to walk the students around me through the thought process. Once you get involved in a translation and that learning sticks with you, it's always on your mind. You're always thinking about it. So one of the things I actively do is talk to the students and, and my lab about it so that they know what's coming. If the idea succeeds, what's coming their way in terms of translation and hopefully, you know, get them started early on in terms of thinking about those challenges so that they're ready when they actually face them. You know, we, as you know, is a very interesting ecosystem 
which has faculty, students, postdocs, and also practitioners, so researchers, the staff that has experience in translating ideas in the past. So they have gone through that journey. And by having them around, it brings in a way to check on ideas early on and navigate them through the uh, hurdles in a more effective way. So having that ecosystem where people can provide different perspective has been also very effective in nudging the technology through the translational hurdle. As Michael said, you've been a co-founder of numerous startups, uh, 10 in fact. For professors and students seeking to translate their research, can you share your philosophy for company creation? What is the right time to go from an academic lab to a startup? That's an interesting question. And the one that comes up all the time when we think about that possibility. You know, I mean, I look at it from people's perspective. Starting a company is actually a challenging task. Or maybe I should say starting is easy, but actually taking it through the process to the successful endpoint is a challenge. And especially starting with early stage technologies, there are always hurdles. So what makes a startup successful, like any other adventurous journey, is a champion. So the champion who is going to be responsible for moving the company forward or technology forward needs to be ready. And that champion can come in a variety of form. It could be a team member in the lab who developed the technology or somebody from the outside who wants to champion the technology. But the readiness of that champion to get behind the idea and make it happen, I think is a key factor. In terms of maybe some practical thoughts as to the readiness of the technology, I think a good preclinical proof of concept is essential. Ideally, in a large animal model, as you know, many technologies that work in small animals don't translate to large animals for a variety of reasons. So having that validation in large animals, uh, it just provides that level of comfort in terms of building the foundation on which the company can be started. So that's typically what we seek to do when we think about starting a company. And when spinning out companies, uh, your group has worked with the Blavatnik Medical Accelerator and the Harvard Life Lab. Uh, Are there essential steps a startup should take to increase their chances of bringing impact to patients? Certainly. So Blavatnik Accelerator actually is a very good example of what I just mentioned earlier, that they help bridge those critical gaps in the technology that can make translation easier. I2O started this way. So for I2O, in the lab, we have demonstrated that we can deliver insulin orally in a rat model. And before the technology is ready for translation and startup, we felt it would be good to have proof of concept data in a large animal model. That's exactly what the Blavatnik Accelerator funded. So we did a small pilot study in pigs, which demonstrated the success of delivery. And that became the foundation of I2O. Harvard Life Lab also plays an important role. It's Harvard's incubator. And when the companies are just starting, having a physical space where the company can nucleate and grow, and at the same time be surrounded by companies which are in a similar stage of formation is always helpful on multiple fronts. So both of them have been very instrumental in supporting the starting up of companies. 
Samir, among your many recognitions, you're an elected member of the National Academies of Engineering, Medicine, and Inventors. You're also a foreign member of the Indian National Academy of Engineering. Having come to the U.S. from India and now giving back globally, how do you think about life science innovation as an international effort? Human health is really a global issue. If you look at the major diseases, they are worldwide. And to come up with a solution that can really get us in front of diseases is going to require innovation from wherever it comes from. COVID vaccines is probably a good example. It's an issue that really faced the entire world. The ability to quickly come up with a solution and have it be used by people worldwide, that's really the way to do this. So I, I do hope that moving forward, we look at human health in that regard and use inspiration, innovation, creativity in any which way it comes to us and leverage it to really solve these important human health problems. Thinking about the impact that you're having and your training of students, do you have any advice specifically for early stage inventors or even college students based outside the US? One advice would be to be bold and creative and take the risk in terms of thinking about really breakthrough ideas. I feel that the entrepreneurial environment in the U.S. is really supportive of risky, bold ideas. And in some other countries, it may not be so. And it may be natural to think about safer, simpler ideas. But I think the real opportunity, especially for the younger generation, is to come up with really breakthrough ideas that can transform the game. Even though they're risky, getting behind them and moving them through the uh, validation path, I think is really the way we can think about in terms of coming up with future solutions to human health problems. Samir, it's been wonderful to host you today. A few rapid fire questions before we come to closing here. If you can step back for us for a second and maybe put some things in context as you go about your work, what would you say are the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years? There are many, maybe a few I can think of right of the back. The therapeutics are getting more complex. Drugs were small molecules many, many decades ago. Now we're talking about cells uh, which have their own life forms. So figuring out how to deliver these complex therapeutics is going to be a key challenge for life sciences. Uh, long times of drug development, a high cost of drug development, something that connects life science with the society. I think that's an important challenge that we need to think through actively. And perhaps to build on that, if we flash forward to biotech in 2050 and hopefully a few of the challenges that you've recognized here may be addressed, help us paint that picture. Where will the landscape and biotech 2050, where will that hold? When I look at the technology industry as a benchmark, I think that provides some guidance in my mind. 30 years ago, when I was a student, to make a phone call, I would need to go to a phone booth uh, and now here we are where communication is a completely different game. It's seamlessly integrated with life. And that's what I would predict would happen, should happen for biotech drugs, where taking medicine is not a chore. It's an integral part of our life that will need many technologies to make that happen. So hopefully we'll see those technologies. I think maybe a couple of specifics. I think technologies may move to more 
curative technologies. I think we'll see more and more of those. Precision medicine, both in terms of taking specific corrective action as well as getting to specific tissues. That I think going to be a big part of the drug landscape and uh, seamless integration of medicine with lifestyle. I think that that will also be a key part of the drugs. It's been a wonderful conversation today. Any closing thoughts that you have perhaps to share with our audience to wrap a bow around today's discussion? We talked about quite a few topics. I think one message I would like to leave the audience with is drug delivery is important. Drug delivery is cool. And without drug delivery, therapeutics would not happen. We have seen an example of that in the last 18 months. And moving forward, I think all stakeholders pay attention to drug delivery and support the development of new exciting delivery technologies that can really get the best out of therapeutic molecules. And we've touched on a lot of great topics today. So many projects you've been up to over the years. How can our audience learn more about your work, Samir? So they can visit our website, which has a lot of information about the current projects and ongoing work. They can also follow me on Twitter. It is a lot of conversation about the current topics. So both of these are good ways to learn more about our work. Fantastic. Thanks, Samir, for a great episode here. I'm sure our listeners will be craving for more. Very grateful for your time. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have a conversation with you. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.